Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Welcome to the Inner Circle Podcast for September. We have themed this uh, a lighting podcast, and we've had so many amazing questions, and I think there's over 130 questions just in the lighting department. So I am going to do as many as I can uh, in the hour that we have. So let's get right to it. First question, what is your best advice for shooting a dramatic scene at night on a desolate road with little to no power supply? This is a low budget, so we're going to be using the available light we have, which includes a couple of car lights, some diffusers, a police car with flashing red and blue lights. The police officer will have a mag light, so we could possibly use that as well for some of the shots. The premise of the scene is that a man's car breaks down as he's driving a... Uh, driving to hide a body in the woods. Later on, the police officer discovers him on the side of the road. That's the short gist of the scene without taking the time to go into detail. What are your best suggestions as far as lighting? Given the circumstances, using available light sources and limited power supply, I look forward to listening to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do. Keep up the good work. You are very welcome, and uh, we will uh, continue to keep up the good work. There was a movie, and it was the first one that the Coen brothers ever did, and it was called Blood Simple. And Barry Sonnefeld uh, shot that film. And what I really loved about the movie was his idea was that we were when we were with the characters, wherever they were, they were kind of lit by, you know, headlights, by taillights, by interior car, uh, you know, the dashboard lights, the dome light. But everything else fell off into black. And 
it had a very powerful statement. It's one of my favorite films that the Coen brothers did, uh, and I loved the cinematography on it as well. So I think in this case, you should do something like this. The character who is going down this road of, uh, you know, trying to hide this body should feel like he's kind of, you know, his area around the car and everything is lit by the bounce of the headlights off of the uh, ground. Uh, so you could play that. You can fire up the headlights and with these beautiful digital sensors that we have now and playing maybe around 2000 ISO or probably a little more around you know, 3200 uh, ISO, I think you could get the the real headlights to be able to bounce off of some white cards uh, and they would reflect, you could reflect them. Now, obviously, you don't necessarily, you can use the headlights if you can get the right angle on the scene of what you want to 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 illuminate but you can also cheat that and you can do it with battery powered flashlights that you can move these cards around and you know keep them stationary so it feels like they're emulating and bouncing off the the ground and and the very soft subtle light that illuminates your actor obviously the a police lights if they turn them on you're going to have those red and blue flashing lights that you can use any kind of uh i've used uh, small little roscoe light pads or i went and bought the truck supply uh somebody that supplies uh truck parts to the big rigs and they have these really powerful led tail lights and you can run those off of a 12 volt battery so you don't have to create um you know a generator and i they were so powerful i was able to put them through diffusion little diffusion so wherever he was working around the back of the car i would have like the red tail light kind of glow and uh when he was moving around the front of the car or in the car i just simulated some dashboard light you can go out and buy very cheaply these leds from from china that really pack a wallop and you can put them into like a double a battery power pack and you can use that as your dashboard light as well as to make it so it's not so contrasty you put those bounce cards out to catch the headlight you know so it feels like that ambience but i think it would be really neat for that whole area to have these colors of the reds the colors of the super white headlights and and green up that light on the dashboard a little and then you have this beautiful mix of color contrast that will you know add to the sea of black that is everywhere around this vehicle the mag lights with the cop all that stuff plays beautifully you can use his spotlight that most police cars have say he's in the car and 
when the police car pulls up, you can ricochet that spotlight off of the mirror, the rearview mirror in his car, and it'll do like a great, like, Sergio Leone slash across his uh, eyes. There's always that kind of thing you can do. And then if you do want to emulate moonlight or distant light or something, it's very easy to kind of accomplish in a Home Depot way. I mean, I don't, I don't think he would try to deposit this body underneath a street light, right? So the best thing is to work with this sea of black that I've described. If you want to detail some of the forest, uh, maybe taking one of those metal halide fixtures that you can buy from Home Depot for a very cheap price and take a putt-putt generator, like a little 1K generator, and hide it way back in the woods and and put it up on a tall stand and uh, call that your kind of moonlight that kind of edge lights and, and cuts through the darkness of what might be in the deep background around him. And then you can literally move that light all around whatever direction you're shooting in to kind of bring up the background. But I think the sea of black would be much more elegant and serve your story and the performances better. Just do a mix of those colors. Now let's go on to question number two. I know it's not ideal, But sometimes in an exterior scene, it's unavoidable to have actors facing towards the sun. What is the best way to combat the harshness of the light in this situation? I try to set myself up for success in blocking scenes that have your actors either backlit or sidelit by the sun. In your blocking you can eventually rotate the scene very subtly over as the sun goes to be able to then keep them in the backlight or and keep them in the side light. Obviously, the sun is going to get to a point where it's way too high and it's going to get out of their eyes. And when that happens uh, for close-ups, what I try to do is I bring in a diffusion called Roscoe Half Soft Frost. It's a diffusion that takes that harshness of the sun out, but it keeps it very directional. So you get the creaminess of a nice close-up but not the harshness of like the hot sun. So if if the sun is coming in at a very extreme angle, you fly the half soft frost, and then you come in with a white card and you kind of fill into their eyes. And then it makes it not look like they're skull-eyed. And then with a little negative fill, which would be maybe like some four by floppies on the other side, you can shape the light so it it looks, you know, more side lit or three quarter front, not so flat. If I'm matching a scene that I want to feel like late afternoon or early morning, I try to shoot all my wide shots in the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And then I go in for and mediums, you know, anywhere that I really will feel and notice that the light is very early morning or very late afternoon. And then I go in for the close-up coverage and I add 
lights and color to be able to emulate the sun. So if the sun was was lower and warmer, then I would fly like a 4 by or a 6 by half CTS to gel that light that is now 5,500 and it was 3,800 Kelvin. So you're keeping it consistent as a, a warm source. And the close-ups you can get away with, the background being a little cooler and a little more brightly lit. So that's kind of been the mantra of doing it kind of more indie, low budget. When you see major feature films that are able to keep this consistency and this beautiful light, they are flying 40 by 80s of light grid cloth uh, over the whole scene or, or full grid or silks. So it has all a very consistent level of light. And then they come in with 18Ks and shape the light and bring out that that quality of of the late afternoon or early morning. A very inexpensive way is to try and shoot your wides and your mediums in the beginning and the end of day and then go in there for close-up coverage and kind of shape it and manipulate it. If you're trying to pull off a twilight scene, you obviously only have 20 or 30 minutes of that liquid gold light. When I was on drumline, I had a four-minute scene and I I chose to shoot that in the morning and in the evening and we were able to over four morning and evenings and then we shot other stuff in the day that had nothing to do with that scene I was able to piece together uh, a four-page scene that feels like it was all shot at dawn so these are your kind of things that you can try to do and and the biggest thing that you need to learn and use is the blocking everything is about blocking your actors and actresses so they can manipulate and spin to be able to get your best uh, quality of light that's possible. All right, question number three. Shane, can you talk about the considerations you make when lighting a female lead? Do you do extensive testing prior to the shoot? Do you determine which side of the face is more photogenic, i.e. shoot a frontal portrait, then in Photoshop make a composite of two left sides of her face, two right sides to see which is more attractive? What softening techniques can you employ without resorting to obviously lens filtration? One thing I would like to say about this question is it's kind of the epicenter of what the illumination experience is all about. The workshop does exactly this. What I do, and it's something that I've done on uh, all 18 feature films, is I take the number one through four or five on the call sheet, however many are the, the main cast of characters, and while we're doing hair, makeup, and wardrobe tests, I bring them in to this, uh, what we're calling on the Illumination Tour, Shane's Pirate Death Ship. And basically what it is, is it's a Fisher 10 dolly where I have a 4x4 soft bounce. I have a 200 Celeb Kino Flow and I have a hard Fresnel 1K. And these lights are positioned on the boom of the dolly so I can boom the whole rig up and the whole rig down. And I bring the actors in and I slowly move this big 
rig, we start with like a bounce source, very soft source, and we slowly bring it all the way around, starting at like, uh, if you imagined a clock, starting at 3 o'clock, bringing it all around to now 9 o'clock. And we're shooting stills as well as we're shooting uh, motion picture and uh, digital while this is happening, the director and I are looking at the, the light quality on his or her face. We're looking at which side is he or she is best lit from, how it access the bone structure. Will we need more diffusion to uh, to help her out? Is there some kind of unique lighting that, that we can do? We start to figure all these things out in pre-production. Once we know which side he or she is lit best from, then we can start to think in our minds how we're blocking scenes. If we know, you know, Amanda Seyfried, for an example, on Fathers and Daughters, she was best lit from the right. Now, there's some times when I'm not able to light her from the right, and I have to light her from the left. But most of the time, I tried to light her from the camera right side. And she just looked so beautiful. And there was just, you couldn't put your finger on why she looked better, but she just did. And the director and I both saw that. And we put that into our uh, mental mind note to when we're blocking these scenes, try to be able to bring the light from the right on her. And I started this during the Rat Pack, which was my first feature film. Rob Cohen walked on to the hair and makeup and wardrobe test, and he's like, Shane, what the hell is that? And I'm like, it's my, you know, light study rig. And he's like, oh, God. And we put first character was uh, Joe Montanga playing Dean Martin. And he stood there, and we started bringing it around, and immediately we saw, oh, my God, are you kidding me? He looks like Dean Martin when he's only lit from the left, if he's lit from the right, he looks like Joe Montanga. And then we started rotating his face because we're like, oh, my God, we can't have it. So, you know, he's looking like Joe Montanga. So then we started to rotate his face because we knew we were going to have to light him from all different sides. Right. So I, we started rotating his face and he'd give us like an eye and a half. And then we could light him from the right side and he, and he looked perfectly like Dean Martin. But if we were square on to him, we had to light him from the camera left side. We figured that out. Same thing with Sammy Davis Jr.'s character, Don Cheeto played it. And when he came in, he had his uh, makeup, which was like this prosthetic eye, to fake the eye that he had lost. And we realized immediately that if we lit him from the same side that the eye was on, it brought out the imperfections in the makeup, no matter how much we could do to try and, you know, make that better. So we started to light him from the opposite side, and that side would go more in shadow. This is a very powerful tool, this light study. And you don't need this massive rig that's I've set up. You can do it as simple with a, a nice kind of soft, diffused source that you hold in your hand and you just move it slowly around and just examine the light quality. And then from that point, if you're looking for diffusion techniques that don't require glass in front of the lens, which I'm in agreement with you, I like to try and do it in post, there's a plug-in called from Cinefilm that you can get into After Effects, which is called Dark Energy. There is a softening kind of noise reduction side of that plug-in that does some of the best 
diffusing and creaming of skin tones that I've seen. And uh, we did it on Need for Speed to kind of clean up some of our actresses. They had had a kind of a long night. It worked absolutely beautiful. And I think the plug-in is only like $3.99 or $3.95. So it's well worth the cash to kind of go in there and kind of understand and just, you know, work with manipulating and finessing the noise reduction tool. And I think you'll find that to be a very powerful entity and you don't have to necessarily do the glass diffusion, which, you know, kind of inhibits you when you're wanting to flare the lens or anything like that. Moving on to question number four. Hi, Shane. I have a question about lighting an interior wide shot in a room with no windows and a low roof that will be seen in the shot. The space we're shooting in is a shop that is about 8 by 20 meters that has been converted into a gym. It has those low fault ceilings that a lot of offices have in them. There are existing fluorescent light fixtures in the roof, but the color cast from them is horrible. What would you suggest to bring the ambient light level up in the room? I understand it's hard to give advice with this small amount of info, but if you were in any general tips for shooting in these kind of rooms, that would be greatly appreciated. Adam from Melbourne, Australia. Well, Adam from Melbourne, it's great to have this question, and I love this question so much because I have had to deal with this type of situation a ton. This is a funny story. My fourth feature film was a film called Drumline. If you haven't seen it, I would suggest you viewing it. It is a very inspiring film that really shows the power of these young college artists. And the music is just insane. And what they do is insane. So it's just an incredible, you know, film for music. So here's the story. I was shooting a commercial in Kansas City, and I got this script delivered to me. And I saw it, and I put it on my desk and went to shoot the commercial. And I got back, and, you know, I started thumbing through the thing a little bit and looking at the script, and then the phone rang. And it was Tim Bourne, the producer of the movie. And he goes, have you had a chance to read the script yet? And I said, hey, Tim, you know, I thank you so much for calling. And I, you know, I understand that you want to, you know, you're interested in me. But I don't know how we do this a marching band movie. The Saints go marching in and, you know, this this whole thing. I just I just don't think this is my kind of genre. And he goes, OK, where are you right now? I'm in my hotel room. And he goes, what's the address? And, you know, I gave him the address and he goes, tomorrow, give me a call. So I'm like, what the hell is this? He's like also cryptic and all right. So I go and I shoot my next day on this uh, children's hospital commercial and I come back and there is a TV in my room that's been rolled like that. You remember like back in the day, this is 2000 and one yeah 2001 so they rolled the little media card in there and their tv's there and the little vhs uh deck is is there and uh there's a there's a tape labeled watch this now <laughs> i was like what the hell is this so uh i popped the thing in and it is a video of this drumline that they had assembled for the movie called The Senate. 
and it was unbelievable. It was nothing like I ever seen before. I mean, this was nothing like any of you had seen, like if you're watching like Notre Dame or USC games and, you know, it's like the Saints go marching in, you know, and the band's playing this stuff. This is not that at all. These guys are jumping, doing flips, dropping on the ground. They're banging on the top of their drum. They're flipping their drum around, banging it on the bottom. I mean, it was like this intricate military precision and I was running for the phone and I picked it up and I'm like hey Tim he goes saw the video didn't you and I'm like I'm in (laughs) so smash cut to a week later I land in Atlanta there's a purpose for this story I'm getting to it Uh, so I land in Atlanta and I am uh, walking to the first location, group of locations, and I meet the director, Charles Stone, who is, I think, one of the most talented directors out there. I've done two films with him, and I absolutely love his energy and and who he is as an artist. And he shows me Clark Atlanta University, which has, you know, it was, uh, its stadium was built for the Olympics, so it has, uh, you know, a big you know, one-sided kind of stadium where everyone sits and a beautiful football field and goalposts and this campus that surrounds it, all red brick buildings and trees. And I'm like, wow, this looks really cool. Yeah, nice. And then we go in and we see the band room. And I'm imagining when I read the script to walk in to these band rooms that are multi-tiered, you know, 14, 20-foot ceilings with all these beautiful sound deadening uh, panels all over the place and, and, you know, mics and music stands and all this stuff. I walk into this room that has the multi-level, but the multi-level is probably only two or three-inch multi-levels because the ceiling is only eight feet tall, and the whole thing is false ceiling and uh, fluorescence. And there's murals all over the wall, and it's just like, I'm like, whoa. I mean, this is nothing that I ever imagined. I was, you know, I, I'm in my head, I'm, you know, I'm reading the scripting, I, I'm envisioning all these, these things. I'm envisioning this beautiful music room because a lot happens in this music room. So I get in there and I'm like, oh my God. And then he says, okay, look at this. And it was kind of a very fast scout. So I'm taking it all in. And then he, and then he goes, okay, let's go see the tunnel. So I don't know if any of you have ever seen the tunnel at USC, but that's what's in my head when I read the script. This tunnel is kind of a crescent shape, so you can't see the end till you get kind of midway, and it is massive. It's like a tunnel that you can drive two 18-wheelers with, and that USC Trojan band comes flying out of that thing with the football players, and it's just a whole celebration, right? So that's what I'm envisioning. I'm envisioning this amazing tunnel because it's one of the turning points in this film is they're all waiting. They're waiting in this tunnel, and it's it's uh, Nick Cannon's first performance, and there's this whole scene where the, the hand goes right up in front of the lens, and you see the drumstick go pack, cack, 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 and then the whole uh, drum line does this weird whoosh, 
they swing their arms and they just start blasting onto their instruments. And the sound is just this deafening experience, right? So I'm envisioning this in the tunnel and it's all, uh, you know, silhouette and mysterious. And then they blast out into the night uh, lights of, of the stadium. So he takes me and he goes, okay, here's the tunnel. And I go, whoa, the tunnel was a five-foot-wide hallway with false ceilings at eight feet again with fluorescent lights, and it was about, I'd say, 80 feet long, and it had two double doors that you pushed open and came into this very narrow channel that emptied out into the stadium. Not anything that I had imagined. I was taking this in all through the day, location scouting, location scouting, location scouting. And at the end of the day, Charles Stone turned to me and he goes, okay, Shane, so, you know, what do you think? Your first day, kind of getting your head around what we're up to. And I turned to Charles and I go, okay, I'm just trying to get my head around this. So how depressing do you want this movie to be? Oh, God, it took me about a week to really understand how to treat this scene. And what I did was this. You have to embrace those fluorescents and just own them. Because there's something that's absolutely powerful about those overhead fluorescents. And because they're so close to people's heads, they create kind of their own contrast. And what I did is I went up in there, and with the diffusers, I put black egg crates that you can buy to fit up into those false ceilings. So now, all of a sudden, the light's just going straight down. So if you're under it, you're lit. If you're not, you're not. So now it creates this wonderful mood. Then I took, they had this name for it, uh, but you basically took uh, one-by-threes, and you put those up into the fault ceilings, and then you could put, like, your own fluorescence. So if you wanted to add a little more light, uh, you could pop a, a fault ceiling tile and add some more light up in there so you could make a bigger pool of light that, you know, the existing fluorescent, and then you add your fluorescent, and then you add the same kind of stuff. You go out and buy those cheesy little diffusers that you get at Home Depot as well as the egg crate. So the quality is is all the same. And then you take black coroplas, which is, or you can take black foam core. Coroplas is, is, I think, even cheaper than foam core. So coroplas, it's a little more rigid than foam core. It's got waffling interior, so you can bend it and shape it and do all these specific things. And then you can actually serrate it a little bit. And because it's hardened plastic, you can angle it and you can, you can even put like barn doors on these things and you just slide grip clips into the fault ceiling and now you're shaping your light even more. Or if you don't want all of the light, you can take the coroplas and just start to kill half of the fluorescent. Like if somebody is is standing in front of it and that top light looks really cool, but it's wrapping too much into their eyes. So you can just snap coroplas up in the top with a couple grip clips. And now, you know, Bob's your uncle. You got a, a beautiful top light and uh, it's not wrapping too much. And you've done it all by just, you know, embracing those overhead fluorescents. Now, 
If it has a very green cast, which is going to have, if it's cool white or warm white globes, I love what cool white globes look like because it has a minty blue-green color, and if you're shooting Canon, they love that fluorescent. And I usually shoot it around 3,600 degrees, and it just does a kind of a minty blue. And then if you really want it to feel like, say, the, the ticket, uh, the short film that I did in the hospital with the overhead fluorescence, you put your camera at 2,700 degrees or 2,900, right around there, and it makes it even bluer with less green. The blue that Canon cameras deliver is more of a purpley blue. So when you force it, the Kelvin into the more blue zone, that green actually creates a, a wonderful cyan color that's not like a pea green, warmy, kind of ugly tone. If you don't want it to be green or don't want it to be cyan or don't want it to be any of these things that I just described, then you go and you buy color-corrected bulbs that you don't have to necessarily get from KinoFlow. You can buy Optima 32s or Chroma 50s from a photo place, and you can get these color-corrected bulbs, and you put all of them in there, and now you're either shooting 3,200 or you're shooting 5,000 to 5,500 uh, degrees on your overhead fluorescence, and they're somewhat color-corrected. They have more of like a plus four green spike in them, so you're going to see a little green, but it's not going to be like the plus 20 or plus 14 uh, green uh, that you'll get from a cool white fluorescent or a warm white fluorescent. I think your best bet is to embrace these fluorescents, shape them like I uh, described, and then the walls, we had a lot of murals uh, on some of them, so they were darker. So I had it all painted a little lighter than 18% gray. So it was like, I'd say probably 10 to 14% gray. When you bring up your contrast in the scene and, and make the, that light really pooly, any of the light that's hitting those walls will really become just nice and white and crisp, but won't nuke out uh, because of the kind of 14% gray level and it not being white. Question number five. Hi, I really like the posts. I like to hear about why you decided to simulate window light. Was it something about the script? I mean, I love the visual, but I learned something from your blog that the most important thing as a beginner is to understand why. From the moment I read this, I like to analyze every movie that I see. Analyze the light, the shadows, the camera movement, the composition, etc., I really appreciate what you do for the people who love the light in the films like I do. Thank you a lot. I know you're a big fan of the do-it-yourselfer and for those on low budgets that can't rent or buy 18Ks. So to simulate sunshine through a window, is there anything out there on cheap that may work the same or do you have any solutions in trying to mimic the sun on a low budget? So let's take the first part of this question. 
why I decided to simulate Windows. He is describing the post where I go into uh, lighting through Windows on the greatest game ever played, which was the power of shaping light. So I kind of discussed how young Francis ran into this department store and his hero, Harry Varden, is up on stage and he sees him blast the golf ball into the net and then he goes up on stage and tries it himself. I simulated window light coming through the room. And he asks, you know, why did I decide to do that? I looked at the space and I said, wow, this is a huge space. You know, this is the 1880s. There was no electricity. So the only light that would possibly be in the room is kind of gas light fixtures. I wanted to emulate that warmth from the ceiling you not necessarily seeing the gas lights, but for you to feel it. So I hung all these warm soft boxes and dimmed them way down to get the quality of that gas light ambiance in the whole department store. And then I thought, you know, my God, the only way we're going to kind of light this is to feel like it's light from, from outside, from, from the windows. So I thought, you know, this is a very important moment in Francis's life. Harry Varden needs to look like a rock star. He needs to look like this amazing hero. And we introed Harry Varden. He kind of, you know, at 120 frames per second, he blasted that golf ball into the net. And you see it hit the net and you see it ripple the net at 120 frames and then we're at 120 frames and we ramp down to 24 frames per second and slide into this beautiful close-up low angle very heroic of the young Harry Varden so I wanted that to feel like he was in the spotlight and I thought window light would be the perfect way to be able to convey this and to convey it in a way that just looked beautiful and wonderfully contrasty so he was lit and then all around the peripheral you know there's sketchiness of the light ricocheting and off of heads and hats and shoulders and stuff but the the focus was what francis went there for and for us as an audience member to fall in love with this figure and his quest for the trophy and and what he went through as a child. I wanted him to feel like he was in this beautiful window light and I didn't want to use late afternoon sun or early morning sun because they went while he was at school which and it was a long walk from the outskirts of Brookline to downtown Boston Mass. So I wanted to feel more like a high noon or 11 o'clock kind of time period. So I kept the lights kind of coolish and did that so we could keep that cool tone and make it feel so you had the color contrast of the cool window light mixed with the soft ambient of the gas, warm gas lights that was coming from our soft boxes up above. Moving on to uh, simulating sunlight for uh, on the cheap. There are very many 
light sources that can simulate the sun on the cheap. You have to go to this company called Granger. Granger is a industrial lighting supply store that specifically has these units that are used to light football fields and baseball diamonds and parking lots. They have a ton of punch. You can get floods and you can get spots. You can't get any unit that will flood and spot. So they're around $300. Now they're heavy as heck because the ballast is built into the head. So unless you take the time to take the ballast off of the head and make it with some kind of head extension remotely, you're dealing with about an 85-pound light. But it's very cheap and it's very bright. I use those when I don't have the money for an 18K and I want to simulate hot sun coming through a window. You can fire two or three of those into a bounce. It brings beautiful ambience into a room that you can balance with the outside. They have a ton of punch. Now they have a little green and uh, the green will burn off. You just have to let the globe just sit on. It took about a 100 hours for the bulb to burn in. So I literally just plugged it into my outlet and just kept the thing going whenever I wasn't home. I would lay it in the the uh, shed and just uh, keep the light burning. These things burn forever. It's not like that globe is going to go on you. You just burn it to the point where it burns the green out and you have uh, like a 6,500 degree very cold HMI now on the cheap and you can you know bring this thing around all over the place it takes only a 20 amp circuit to be able to give you the punch of a 6k par there's a catalog that you can get online i get the catalog shipped to me and it becomes my diy source for all of the lighting that i do I think that would be something that you would enjoy, and I think it would be something that uh, would be very cost-effective. And you kind of want to get floods and spots. The spots will create this really hot sunlight that you can flag pretty nicely and uh, color if you want to go for late afternoon or whatever you want to add, or you can use those spots to be able to bounce into foam core or whatever to be a soft source, and then if you want hard shadows, then the flood fixtures are going to be a little better to cut and make hard shadows if you want to create hard sunlight shadows in the background and not just hot out of focus pools. Moving on to question number six. I need to learn lighting and my film school is not teaching me this extremely important skill needed as a cinematographer. I'm looking for any good way to learn lighting properly and professionally to get the results I aim for in my films. I can't afford expensive light kits and the millions of accessories that go with them, so I was hoping you had other suggestions for me. I'm afraid that after four years of paying a $50,000 tuition, I will come out with no knowledge in what I was looking most toward to learn. Also, if you accept interns, I would love to apply. I'm extremely dedicated, and I will work harder than you can imagine to start living my dream. Thanks, Mr. Hobart. Omar. Well, Omar, thank you very much, and I love your passion, and I love your understanding of what it takes to get into this entertainment industry. I would not say that your $50,000 tuition is all lost. Film school does a lot of different things. 
It enables you to get out of the home. It gives you responsibility that you never had. It is a life experience that absolutely is essential. Now, will you pull all the tools of the trade out of film school after doing a four-year degree? Absolutely not. But will you be a better human being because of it? Yes. So, you have to supplement that of what the uh, university or college is not able to give. And they're not able to give this because they have a lot to teach. And you have to specifically kind of search out those programs that are much more based in cinematography than just filmmaking in general. If you really started to love light while you were in the filmmaking program, then the best way is to kind of try to supplement that learning. The illumination experience that I'm on tour right now, as I talk to you, I am in Dallas. And I'm about ready to do a show uh, tomorrow and the next day, which... I think will be probably one of the most amazing things you could ever experience. I don't know exactly where you're located, but if you're anywhere in the United States, you should get yourself into this course. It will be the best money that you've ever spent, and it will really help you in the area that you feel you're lacking. The best way to get started is to start at the bottom. If you want to learn how lights work and the power of these lights and how to shape light and how everything about starting and building yourself as a cinematographer, then you start at a rental house. That's where I started. It is one of the best learning environments you could ever imagine because you learn the names of everything. And learning the names is 50% of the process. When you get on set, people are going to turn to you and say, hey, can you get me a quarter apple? Hey, can you get me a baby nail on? Hey, grab me that Charlie bar. You're going to want to be able to know all these things. And without knowing these names, you're not able to help the people out and the crew out. First, learning the names, very essential. Is there an online resource to tell you all these names? Absolutely not other than the inner circle. And I'm trying my best to educate you all on what these things are called and how you go about using them. But I'm only one person. Getting into a rental house where you can just start packing grip trucks and pulling orders. And when you test a light, you start to understand how powerful it is. You have to fire it up. You have to spot it in. You have to flood it. You, you have to do all these things when you're testing a light and you start to understand its values. When you start to get experience on the set, you're going to now know when you move up to being a key grip or a gaffer or a cinematographer, you're going to know, okay, I was in that shop and I knew what that M18 did, or I know what that 2K open face had and the power of it. And you start to quantitate those lights to delivering the output and putting them in the situations that are going to be the best for them. Now, obviously, as you're coming up the ladder being a gaffer, you're going to learn all these things, too, and the values, because that's your job. But starting at the rental house and starting at the bottom and really the ground-up kind of scenario is very important for you to build that confidence as an artist and the brick and mortar of your foundation of being a great cinematographer. Next question. Shane, I have a project coming up where I need to emulate lightning flashes coming in through a window. 
and illuminating the subject's face and surroundings. I've been trying to find some guidance, but keep coming up short. So if you have any pointers to share, that would be stellar. Cheers, Jordan Swenson. Jordan, the best company that is out there that simulates this absolutely perfectly is a company called Lightning Strikes. They have vendors all over America. I know they have it in Chicago, L.A., Miami, New York. If you're looking for somewhere else abroad, I'm not exactly sure where that would be, but they're called Lightning Strikes, and they have these strobe heads. And David Pringle is the owner and creator of these incredible devices. And they come in all different wattages. They have some to simulate uh, paparazzi flashes. Uh, they have some to simulate lightning flashes or strobes. or, And they register on film uh, beautifully. On digital sensors, you have to be very aware because of the rolling shutter. So if you have a global shutter you're all good. If you have a mechanical shutter, you're all good. But if you're dealing with a DSLR or a C500 or even an Aria Alexa, you're going to get the flash that happens for two-thirds of the frame, and then the other third of the frame has that nice uh, dark bar. So uh, I found that by using those flashes, the Alexa is a little better at it, so you don't see it as much, so you can use those pretty effectively with the Alexa, but with DSLRs, you definitely get that bar, so you're going to have to get into After Effects and kind of paint that out if you're shooting with DSLRs. To kind of mimic it without these devices, uh, there are strobes called Atomic Strobes. They're about, uh, I'd say, a foot and a half long and about 8 or 10 inches high. They are beautiful for simulating this, and they are very much on the cheap, and they're a theatrical strobe. So you can find these wherever, you know, there's theatrical rentals, and that's almost all over the world. They use them in all the big uh, rock and roll shows and uh, theatrical events and theaters and plays and stuff to, to emulate lightning. These are very compact. They don't take a ton of power and will give you a really nice punch coming through that window. I think this is going to be our last question. Dear Shane, thank you for sharing in the inner circle. I am from Hong Kong. Please forgive my weird English. I love the way you lighting the scenes in the greatest game ever played, which you shared with us in a post. I would like to ask if I could do a similar looking without the large light source, as I was always doing low-budget production. It's not possible for me to get any 18Ks. Most likely, a 1.2K HMI is the largest light source for mine. Is it possible to light the same scene with a small light source? What would you do? Also, I would like to ask if I got a high ISO camera, for example, like a Sony A7S, is it possible to use higher ISO and smaller light source to get the similar looking? Thank you, Mike. Okay, Mike from Hong Kong. By using a higher ISO camera in a controlled setting, if you are not trying to balance the light from existing day exterior outside 
but you're creating this set inside and you want to simulate daylight, then you can absolutely do it with a 1.2K HMI. You can bring all your values down. Uh, you'll get a beautiful hard shadow with the, with the par light and you can just work in those lower ISOs. Absolutely. It's again, it's just taking it all down. But if you are not able to do it in a set controlled environment, then you are at the mercy of Mother Nature. And Mother Nature is very vicious because she's very bright. And if you have to try and hold a window in the background so it doesn't look so clippy and overexposed, and you want to try and use just your 1.2 HMI, it's not going to cut the mustard or it's not going to be enough. If that is what you're trying to do, then you would have to go to some bigger sources like I had described from Granger. They're 1500 watt sports fixtures is what they're called. And they pack a wallop. They are metal halide. And like I was just describing to one of the other students that um, asked me the question, he was asking, you know, what what other light can emulate that that's not an 18K because he can't afford that? Well, these sports fixtures, 1,500-watt sports fixtures, will do absolutely that. They're a little heavy. You kind of have to build them yourself because they'll come all not put together, but they're pretty simple to build, and you shouldn't have a problem. And now you're going to have a light that is very efficient. And by burning it in, like I described, you're pretty successful in not having too much green that you can't color correct uh, out in your post process. And I think this will give you the best of both worlds. If you're in a controlled environment, yes, you can use these smaller heads and you follow the same exact idea of shaping the light with toppers and siders and bottomers, everything that I described in that shaping, the power of shaping light post. Or if you're dealing with uh, Mother Nature and having to balance, you go to these bigger Granger units that I'm pretty sure you could probably purchase in Hong Kong as well and be able to deliver that same punch. This concludes the September podcast where the theme was lighting, and I thank you so much for listening. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, Do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for All Access members, and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, 
This is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.